Well, this is Alex Grant. Today's episode is brought to you by my new comic, Journey into Mexico, with Latin American artist Sebastián Guidobono, following the adventures of young T-Hax Tabaris, who wields the power of... El Fuego! During a very politically hot time in 1830s Mexico. Available in both English and Spanish on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, Comixology, and other book outlets such as IndiePlanet.com. Cheers, and let's get started. So welcome again to the Comic Book Historian Podcast. I'm Alex Grand with my co-host Jim Thompson. And today we have an exciting guest, Howard Chaikin, who is a writer, artist, auteur, as well as the comic book historian who's written and penciled for a variety of projects over decades. Um, Howard, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm very grateful to have I'm willing to mistake attention for affection, so I'm here for you. <laughs> All right, okay, so, Jim, so Jim, I'm going to get started. Off. Stop fighting, girls. It's just, it's really inappropriate. Just cut it out. <laughs> All right. So, Howard, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. And I wanted to start with the early background questions, because I think it's somewhat important, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's somewhat important to understanding you, both in terms of an auteur theory sort of point of view, but also just there are, there's a lot of, of you in, and your background and your childhood uh, and your growing up in, those, in the comics. Would you say that's correct? I'd say that is true. I mean, all of us who do this for a living, all of us who, who make shit up for a living, both apply what we've learned and experienced in our own lives, but also bring wish dreams to it. You know, that dream is a wish your heart makes stuff. Wish, wish is this the way it should have been? This is the way I'd like it to have been? That sort of thing. But yes, I'd, I'd have to agree with that. Yes. And at the same time, you, you've uh, mentioned in interviews a certain, I won't say distaste, but a, a lack of love or enthusiasm for certain alternate comics autobiographical tendencies that, that uh, kind of dominate the field. How do you mean? Like, like uh, what? Oh, like the, the ones that are not independent comics, but the alternate comics, the Comics Journal really were advocates for. The ones that are uh, more like... Uh, oh, 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 you mean, star, you mean the stuff that, that, that come out of like the post-Picar, post-Spiegelman universe? Exactly. I see. I, I wouldn't say so much disdain, but uninterest. I think I that's have, right. I don't, I don't have a particularly censorious sensibility. I, I have an aversion to uh, aversion. the very idea of censorship. And the, the problem I have with these books is less their existence than their assumption of a kind of a moral plane of superiority to anything else that exists in the same, in the same sort of medium and franchise. And there's sense? certainly that notion in, in the way that Gary Groth talked about it, but also in the way that Spiegelman talks about it, or just the embracement of something like Fun Home, all of which I like, but that's never been what you do when you bring your stuff. I almost said baggage, and that's wrong. But Oh, I, I'm but, willing to go with baggage. I, I really am. <laughs> I, I mean, I, come on. I mean, I am a, look, I'm a 68-year-old Jew, product of Brooklyn and New York. If I haven't got baggage, what's the point of being neurotic? Huh. If if you didn't say Jew in Brooklyn in the first five minutes of his talking, I would have felt like I had failed in this this initial question. So. I'm here for you in that regard. So let's let's hear that background a little bit. What, Look, um, I mean, I am I am de as as defined as I am by that fact, by the fact that I'm a Brooklyn Jew. I mean, it really is. I was talking about this not 20 minutes ago in the context of I, I live in a small town and I was having you know, brunch with a group of people at the beach. I mean. I live the antithetical life to what would assume that I, I was born to, be, to live through. Hmm. And I explained to someone that when I was 13 years old, I was very ill, and I spent a week in bed, and I watched television all day. And I watched, in those days, in New York City, the WNEW affiliate owned the Warner Brothers product, and they showed a week's worth of the gangster comedies, the, post, the, the, the second cycle of the gangster films at Warner Brothers, in which the same cast and the same sets were used to tell comic stories of gangsters. City, of Con City for Conquest, Brother Orchid, Slight case of murder, that sort of thing. And this would be after the production code came in and, and oh no, this, this, is, like little, 90, this is like 30, 30, 38 to forty in that realm. Oh, okay. And and I and I realized that everybody in the movies, all these great Warner Brothers stock players, everybody in those movies was. I mean, I, I realized that everybody in the movies who was supposed to be stupid sounded like me. And <laughs> I, I I made it a concerted and discerning effort to cease to sound like one of the Bowery Boys or Leo Gorsi or Hunts Hall. Because that's what I sounded like when I was 13. By the time I was 15 or 16, I had developed from smoking as well. I developed this voice. That that voice has, carries more authority than it deserves. I might add. 
When, when um, you say this voice, you mean like the way your manner of speech right now? The way I sound now. Yeah, okay. Okay. I've always been this articulate. It's gotten me into more trouble than you can possibly imagine. Mm, I like it. I mean that with all my heart. And that, that aspect of my childhood, growing up in, in Brooklyn in the 1950s, I was born in 50 and raised in Brooklyn. I was raised a block and a half and 25 years later than Gil Kane. Uh, he went to the, we went to the same grammar school. Right. And, um, my experience as a little boy was to escape into comic books, uh, comic books, movies, and television were, were the means of which, cause I, cause I, I am basically a coward. I don't like confrontation of any kind physically cause I'm afraid of getting hurt and comics were a place to hide. And I loved comic books and I loved comic books unequivocally. I mean, uncritically, everything about comic books. I loved the language. And mm-hmm. from the minute, minute I saw comic books, I recognize that someone made these things, and I wanted to be one of those people. So what were you uh, reading? Were, yeah, DC and Timely, or what? Well, in, in, in 55, I got, a, I got a box of comics. I was reading. I read all the DC stuff. Um, I, read all, I read the teenage stuff. I love the Archie stuff. A lot of Looney Tunes and a lot of Disney stuff. The one stuff I couldn't accommodate was the horror stuff. I just, for some reason, the box of comics I got had no ECs in them, but they had the EC imitators and, the, you know, a lot of injury to the eye motif comics. Mm-hmm. And, so and you, I, were, and I, you weren't getting the Kurtzman, uh, the, the no, combat no, uh, no, stuff? No, 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 not at that. I didn't discover, I discovered EC, like many of my generation did, in the, in the, in the reprints that came out from Ballantyne in the early 60s. The mad reprints were followed by, by a collection of the, of the science fiction stuff and the horror stuff. And uh, they were printed sideways in, ba- in bad black and white print on Valentine paper. Oh, yeah. They were a revelation. I had no idea where they came from. You know, they didn't exist. And at that so, point, I was, a, I was a Golden Age collector because in those days, Golden Age collecting was affordable. Mm. Oh, and, that's um, really interesting. Yeah, I loved, I mean, I loved the gold. I was a serious Golden Age collector. Mm-hmm. So who were the Golden Age artists that you were, you were drawn to or, oh, no, or did I, it matter I, at that point? I was 12 years old and right. thir- 12 and 13. And, and at that point... I wasn't aware of artists. I was aware of content. Like, like all kids, I mean, you, the brand for me in those days was the, was the character, was the material. The, the maturing eye evolves past that and, and develops the sensibility to recognize the fact that the artist is the brand, the talent is the brand. But as a child, we innately understand, from our perspective, that the character is the brand. And I love, I love Jack Burnley's Superman. And years later, I realized it was mm. Jack Burnley. That's nice. what I think. Uh, I you know, I, I think it changed a little bit. I was 12 when Kirby left Marvel and went to DC, and we we knew who Kirby and Ditko were partly because the advertisements were, right, you know, right, Kirby is coming. Right. No, I mean, I mean, look, the fact is, by by the time the Marvel stuff comes along, I I get turned on to Marvel at, at around this time, okay, and. I mean, I knew Jack Kirby's work because I, I knew it from Boy Commandos. I knew it from Newsboy Legion. I knew it from The Challenges of the Unknown and also oh, nice. from, from, the, from the Harvey stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and I was a huge fan of the, of the Fly. There was the grotesqueness of the Fly really appealed to me. Oh, yeah. And, and I got turned on to the, Kirby, to the Marvel stuff while I was at summer camp. I was at summer camp. Uh-huh. And I came back from summer camp, and, and the world was, was Marvel awash. So I bought up all of the Marvels at that, that had come out at that, that point. I think Spider-Man number, Fantastic Four number three was just out. Right. And, and, I, and I became a complete Marvel junkie. I mean, I turned my back mm-hmm. on DC Comics completely. And I've been a Silver Age guy. You know, mm-hmm. I was, you know, Gil Kane was my guy. I mean, the, these guys were it. But Did in the like, Golden um, Age stuff, I mean, I mean, had I known the quality books, had I had, I, had, I had, had I had the eyes to see what those quality books were doing, what Lou Fine was doing over there, what Kosky right. was up to, what Jack Cole was doing, all of which was under the aegis of Will Eisner. I would have been into those books as well, but I wasn't aware of it. And the, and the timely books in those days were really ugly. Marvel's books back in the Second World War were really just really dreadful-looking stuff. Kirby's work at DC was vastly superior to the stuff he was doing with Simon and Marvel, I think. Yeah, I think um, so, too. I like uh, Manili a lot. Well, I, I, I came to know Manili's stuff much later, and, and a lot of that came out, out of Archie, uh, Archie Goodwin, uh, showing me that stuff. I mean, Ar- Archie was, to a certain extent, the linchpin of two aspects of my life. He showed me a lot of the 50s, 40s and 50s stuff that I'd never seen. And he also was the one who weaned me away from science fiction into crime fiction. You know, it, it's funny, in all the interviews we do, two, two things, two common threads come up. One is everybody says that they are super early readers, and I wondered about that with you. Yes, I, I, I entered kindergarten reading on a fourth grade level because of comics. Yeah, that's what, that's what we hear each time. And most of the people we talk to, talk about Archie Goodwin as somebody that was very important to 
to their process or, or their development industry-wise. Uh, I wouldn't that say that he was important to my, in, in that sense. I, I wouldn't go that far because he didn't edit me much. We didn't work together all that often. But I respected his tastes enormously. He was also one of the funniest, wittiest men I've ever known in my life. And he was capable of being friends with people that, that seemed complicated. You know, I mean, he was very close friends with Gil Kane, who was a very difficult guy you know, and you know, was my first boss. And, and Gil suffered no, no fools. And the fact that, that Gil was close friends with both Roy Thomas and, and Archie Goodwin, and, they, and it went beyond, and it wasn't an they weren't, they weren't friendships of opportunity by any means. They were, they were friendships of, of simpatico and, and, and like-minded ideas. That well, I, have to, I have to say that Archie's tastes influenced me more than him as a professional working. Hmm. Around the age of 19 or so, how did you make your way to meeting Gil Kane and becoming his assistant? That was around 1969-ish. Yeah, I met, I met Gil when I was 13. Okay. He doesn't remember this at all, but I mean, he was like one of the, the critical moments of my childhood. Mm -hmm. at, a, at a used bookstore, well, he was looking for Will James books. Will James was a, a Quebecois who reinvented himself as a, as a, a, a cattle hand. Uh, who wrote a, ch a series of children's books about horses. Yeah. And Gil's drawing of horses has always been legendary and derived a lot from Will James's description, depiction of horses. I was awestruck by him. He was just a, a, an Olympian figure. Nice. And I, I found out, I don't know what it's like in fandom today. I really have no idea. The, the, the social networking has created an entirely different universe. But in those days, fandom, we, we were in touch with each other all the time. We had coffee together. We drank together. And I heard for the grapevine that a guy who'd been his assistant had died in his sleep. Ah. Uh, a guy who was going to be a player, a serious talent, a guy named uh -huh. Tim Battersby, who worked in a, in a style similar to Woody's. He was one of the Woody guys. Uh -huh. And he died at 21 of an un undiagnosed heart ailment. And um, because of the callousness of youth, I called Gil. And uh, <laughs> I hear your guy died. You need somebody. I went to work for him, and I told him how, how my work was mediocre, and he disabused me of this notion. He said, basically, this work is utter shit. There's no value whatsoever. Uh -huh. And uh, my feeling was hurt. <laughs> I had only one left. But I, ultimately, I learned, I, I, I owe 95% of my career to the, 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 the near year I spent working for Gil, more than any of the hands-on work I did for Woody or Gray mm -hmm. or anyone else. I learned how to do what I do from watching Gil do it. Yes. So he was essentially, was he teaching you to like, storytell and you absorbed it all? Like, what, was, what kind of process was that? It was more a matter of, you know, it isn't, it, I couldn't even put my finger on it. Just, you know, there was something about the way he lived his life, the way he approached his profession, that struck me as logical and real. Hmm. And, uh, and I got it, you know. Yeah. I mean, there were just, I mean, right now I'm working on the second arc of Hey Kids Comics. Yes. And which, which addresses a post-Silver Age area. It starts in 1950 and ends in 1980. And it, and, it, and it talks about some of, the, of that relationship in, a, in, a, in, a, in an obscurous way, hopefully. Mm -hmm, Thank you very mm -hmm, much. Mm -hmm. And I can't really put my finger on what it was, but to this day, I hear Gil's voice echoing in my head Wow! when I, when I find myself being pontifical. Mm -hmm. Did you work on Blackmark with him? I did. I filled in blacks. I erased pages. I filled in blacks, like I say, and I pasted up, up text. And I was terrible. I was I was, I, had, I was skill free. I had nothing going on. Hmm. You know, you can't know. And in retrospect, of course, now that I know more about Gil's life, I realize that he was exactly me when he was that age because his work was oh, wow. terrible. Just, mm -hmm. he was awful until really into the, I'd say a good 10, 12 years into his career. He didn't get any good. Right. His work in the, in the 40s and early 50s is dreadful. And then all of a sudden he develops and he begins to imitate Dan Barry and imitate Alex Toth right. after spending all those years imitating Jack Kirby. And finally, he finds his language. And I think a lot of that language he found was being beaten up by Bern Hogarth. Oh, he was a far better artist then. But Hogarth beat him up so much, and Hogarth intimidated him so much. Uh, I mean, Hogarth intimidated him the way he, the way he first intimidated me. Uh -huh. The difference is I got over being intimidated. I, don't, I think Gil died intimidated. <laughs> oh, interesting. That's funny. Okay. So when you say intimidated, like, so he went, he did, you're saying like at the Bern Hogarth school that Bern Hogarth kind of um, got into his head to improve yeah. as an artist. That's what, that's what you're well, saying. I, well, Gil was an autodidact. And, and mm -hmm. Gil, Gil always, I think, resented the fact that he never had an education that went beyond the 10th grade. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, I've said this in print more than in public, it's more than, more than once. The one, 
the, I, I owe my career. I stand on the shoulders of Gil Kane, Gray Morrow, Wallace Wood, and Neil Adams, and Joe Orlando. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that separates me from those men is that none of them could write worth a shit. <laughs> yeah, you you're know? a great writer. Uh, yeah. and, I, and I write well. Okay? Yeah, you do. Gil could write essay, but he could never translate that essay skill onto a comic book page. Yeah, interesting. The whole original art, you know, question. So back in DC back then, you know, they, they would take the original art. They, they wouldn't give it to the artist, but what was the story with Gil and original art? What, what exactly happened there? I don't know exactly, but I, I take very seriously the idea that, that he was a thief. Okay, okay. I have, I, have no, I have no doubt in my mind that that was the case. Mm-hmm. I, have, I, have no, I, I have no, I'm not a witness. Right. But I don't doubt it for a minute. Yeah. Did you like him? Was he like a yeah, second father yeah. to you in a way? He was, he was the single most important male influence in my life. My, my father disappeared from my life when I was nine. Um, my, my mother took me and my two brothers on the run because my father was, an abu- was a, a physical abuser. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was raised on welfare until I was a teenager and left and was thrown out of the house when I was 16 because I was mm. a, a complete asshole. Was that your biological father that did that or was it the stepdad? No, no, my, I never knew my biological father. Okay, so it was your stepdad. That so yes, I am a bastard literally and figuratively. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, Jim has some questions about some later Gil Kane work. Jim, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, just I, I wanted to ask you, um, in terms of Legend of the Dark Knight, 24 to 26, of Flyer, mm-hmm. uh, where you wrote it and Gil Kane illustrated it, what was that like to, to work with your mentor, where you're the, you're the writer and he's, he's putting on paper what's in your mind? Well, Gil, Gil was the one who came to me with the generalized concept. Okay. Gil was, Gil was a guy who had a nose like a toucan, and as soon as he had it, had it bobbed <laughs> off and turned into a, a, a Charles Saxon New Yorker cartoon, he saw anti-Semites under every rock. Huh. And, and, and ironically, of course, he drank cocktails with those people on Friday night every, every Friday night. Yeah, so he had a uh, nose job. That explains the pictures being so different from when he, when he was younger. Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I addressed this issue in the second arc of Hey Kids, by the way. Just That's funny. Because I'm, I'm willing to go out on a limb. I like it. But, the, the, the real irony is that he, was, he approached me on this one, and, and around the same time he approached me with a second project, which is to do an adaptation of Gladiator. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was originally going to be the artist in that book. The one that Russ Heath did. Yeah, yes. Heath. yeah yes. legend. Yes. Uh, I wrote the script, and I, uh, my, my, my working process is I don't draw anything or have anything drawn until the entire thing is written. I mean, um, I'm, I'm, I'm on issue five right now of the first draft of Hey Kids, volume two. It'll mm-hmm. be six issues. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to send my editor this incredibly rough draft as soon as I finish issue six, which will be nice. middle of the week. Uh-huh. So he read the four issues of, of, uh, of Gladiator. Why they called it Legend, I have no fucking idea. I couldn't tell you. And he decided he couldn't do it because it was too fucking difficult. That was the bottom line. It was too hard to do, mm-hmm. which annoyed the hell out of me. It really did because I really I wrote it at him. Mm-hmm. And it lay dormant for a, couple, for a little while. I mean, there were a number yeah. of people who were, who were attached to it. And when Russ came up, I mean, at that point, Russ had been doing really nothing work for 10 years. And, and then I happened to be in D.C., and I saw this, the second half of that Enemy Ace 1940s thing that he did that he finished up for that French guy. Right. And it just kicked ass. It was astonishing. Mm-hmm. And Russ and I used to live in the same neighborhood. I ran into Russ at a restaurant. I said, you've been phoning it in for 10 years. What the fuck? And he came on and did an astonishing job. But I still would have loved to have seen Gil do it. I really Yeah, did. right, right. Just one more question on, on that. I just wanted to talk about the, the actual flyer for a minute. I have very little memory of actually doing it, Mayor Fairman. The, it's a long time the, the last page of issue 25, you All right, you I'm, I'm going to have to take with, your word at this. You can tell me anything. Go ahead. Okay. Where you said you have the female character saying, fulfill the destiny. I'm going to fulfill the destiny of being bearing a child, your child. So like it or not, Liebchen, I'd suggest you lie back and enjoy it. And in the right-hand bottom corner is a box that says, next issue, the climax. And I just thought for, for a, a DC comic of the time that you're putting in that level of humor, sexual humor, did, uh, do you remember at all if anybody like, was even aware of what you were doing? No. No. Huh. Went no. it right under their nose. <laughs> no, ne- no, never picked up on it at all. Because I, I just laughed out loud when I, I mean, saw it. Look, if, I, if I'd written Lincoln, Think of England, would they have gotten that? <laughs> Of course, you uh, worked with Gil Kane. Then you went over and worked with Wally Wood in his studio. So what, was that 1970, 71? When did that happen? I guess it was around 70. He, uh-huh. Woody was, work, was, was living and working in Valley Stream, Long Island. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, he needed someone to pencil a uh, kind of a vaguely salacious Western strip. I was utterly unequipped to do this. I, I, I lasted for seven weeks. I sucked. My work was terrible. Mm-hmm. Gray Morrow introduced us. And what mostly came out of that was my understanding of how dreadful I was mm. and a lifelong friendship that, that, that evolved from with that with Jack Abel at that point. Oh, nice. Uh, Jack, oh, Jack he was, was there, wasn't he? He was part he, of the, uh, yeah. the, the, the group at that time. Well, he was renting space alongside Sid Shores. Both of them had studio space there. Mm-hmm. And Woody planted me in the same room as them. And within a day or two, Jack realized Jack spent his entire day fucking with Sid Shores, just, just making fun <laughs> of him, just mocking him. And it went right over Sid's head. And he realized within a day or two that he had a henchman in me. And, and you know, from that point on, I was Jack's bitch. We, we would just we were horribly cruel to Sid, who never was aware of it at any time. He died having no, no clue of any of this. Yeah. And, that, and, that, and I became, I was, that, that, that codified my place on the, the Jack Abel shit list. That was the first name on the list. <laughs> it, was a, so, a, a glory, it was a glorious list, I might add. What prompted you to leave Gil Kane and then work with Wallywood? Like, the, work the, the, work, the work ended. The work with Gil ended. the project was over. On. Okay. Yeah. And then how did you meet Wally? I was introduced to him by Gray Morrow. Okay. Gray was, was one of the kindest men I've ever known. Just an mm-hmm. absolute prince. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I got to know Gray. I think, I think, I think I met Gray briefly. And I seem to, it may have been Alan Weiss who introduced us again. Hmm. Or, or it might have been one of the first Fridays at Jeff Jones's place. I don't recall. Gray was, was, was a, real, a real sport. He lived in Brooklyn. He had two apartments, one on top of the other. A different Brooklyn than there is today, I might add. He put me in touch with Woody, and that's how it happened. That's how it happened. And mm-hmm. so how is it working with Wally Wood? A, a real learning experience, as I've said more than once, that uh-huh. I wanted my life to end up like Gil Kane's, but I had a terrified experience that it might end up like Wallace Wood. Right. Woody was a, was a miserably depressed, angry, by that point in his life, racist and anti-Semitic, drunken raver. Uh-huh. Was, was just a terrifying presence. But he and, knew you uh, were Jewish and you guys were friends, right? Well, we were, I wouldn't say we were friends. I mean, he was, oh, I, he was, I, mean, he was more, he, I think he was far friendlier with, with guys who preceded me, with guys like with Ralph and Larry. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe Paul Kirshner, those guys. I see. Uh, I wasn't there. I wasn't there very long. You know, Woody was just a really miserably bitter, unhappy man. I think yeah. a lot of it has to do with the fact that. Have you read Hey Kids, the first volume? Yes. Okay. Thematically speaking, what that what that five issue arc is really about, underlying it all, mm-hmm. is that every one of those guys of that generation believed that they were in comics as a stepping stone to something else. Right. That that this is going to lead to some other aspect of their lives. I think yeah. Alex Alex Toth, for example, always expected to become an illustrator of some serious import. Right. And they all were looking, and, and, and for them, I think a lot of it had to do with the newspaper strips. And yeah. then, of course, they came up against the glass ceiling of the fact that the newspaper comic strip world isn't really open to Jews. It's a it's a waspish business. Huh. Uh, at least it was then. And the truth is, the difference between that generation and mine, and this comes out in the in the second arc, and it's stated explicitly. Mm-hmm. So my generation does not come into this with any real bitterness in the sense because we, we came in knowing exactly what we what, what we were going to get and what we wanted. Yes. Um, the difference between you know Jack Kirby's you know alleged you know the comics will break your heart, kid. You know that that kind of like Warner Brothers melancholy melodrama bullshit. These guys were really disappointed by the lives they ended up leading. Yeah. You know, and they did get ripped off. They did get burned. You know, and you and, feel but, like Wally didn't get what he was expecting. Oh, I, well, but Woody was also the, he, he was incredibly self-destructive. Mm-hmm. He just, you know, he, he, he drank at problems. Right. Do you, do you feel like his leaving Mad Magazine was the beginning of that? Yes, I do, unequivocally. Unequivocally, okay. But, but, his, but his relationship with Gaines had deteriorated to so profound a degree that I don't think he could have stayed. Right. Interesting. So Dan Atkins, did you... Never, uh, never met him, never knew him. Never met an him. And then yeah. you started working on fanzines around this time in 1970. Is that is that correct? I don't recall. Uh, maybe. Okay, maybe. I mean, all right, all right. I mean, look, we're, we're talking, you know, a, a number of years. A long time ago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. a long time ago. This was before I was, I was around. So, um, I, mean, and, I mean, in the 19th, I mean, my, my first professional job under my own name was uh-huh. a, a one-pager for Murray Boltonoff that Neil Adams, you know, basically, you know, forced down his throat. It was terrible. I had no skill set. And I didn't learn how to work until, you know, I was tw- five years into the business. My work was terrible. I mean, it was, I mean, Gil was right. The work was, had no value whatsoever. It was complete shit. It wasn't mediocre. It was dreadful. I mean, I am the least naturally skilled and talented member of my generation. I am, I am nothing but a grind. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't know about that. Yeah. It's the truth. I mean, I had yeah. a, I learned everything I know 
is cerebrally based. I learned how to do everything I know how to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and this is, I, I'd much rather, I mean, I look at a guy, and I don't think it's easy for these guys. Believe me, you can't know what it's like to have that limitation of skill set and walk into a room and have Bernie Wrightson waiting for you. Well, you know, the, yeah. di- the difference is, the difference really is, that I was smart enough to recognize my own limitations and do something about it. Right. And most of these guys, an enormous number of guys, believed that their, their, their skill set granted them a free ride and that this was going to be it forever. You know, there was yeah. that, that endless summer sensibility, those, those, fifth, those, those, those surfers who wake up at 55 years old and realize, oh, my God, what did I fucking do with my life? Yeah, interesting. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I, I live in a town filled with those guys. Mm-hmm. What, so what was the Overseas Weekly? The Overseas Weekly was a, uh, a newspaper sold exclusively on PXs in, on, on military bases around the world. Woody had a deal with them to produce comic strips. He did Sally Forth and Cannon, which were, you know, they had, they had nudity. They had, they, they, had no, they had no fucking, but they had a lot of nudity. And the same thing right. was true of the thing I did, Shattuck. I mean, ended yeah, up, yeah. I ended up dropping it. Dave Cochran came in and took it over and did a much better job. Cochran's skill set was, was in place by that time. Mine, my skill set didn't really emerge until the late 70s. And a lot of it came out of shame because I was shamed by my public performance. Did Wood, Wood pretty much ink over your guy? He inked every – look, Woody – Woody. let me tell you about Woody. <laughs> the way Sally Forth and Cannon were done was he had an assistant who would go through – he would hand the assistant. It was, it was a double – I think, as I recall, it was a double tier, okay, like a, the top half page of, an, of, a, of a full-size newspaper, okay? Mm-hmm. And he would have an assistant. I won't name the name of that assistant. He's not dead yet. Who would come in and go through the swipe file and trace other artists' work, photographs, everything, just to build a to, to fill in the, two, the the double tier with autograph tracings, okay, mm-hmm. from everybody, from Kniff, from Toth, from 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 Foster, from from illustrators, from photographs. And then Woody would come in with a brush and ink it, and it would end up looking exactly like Wallace Wood. <laughs> yeah, I got you. You can't, you, I mean, years ago, one of my colleagues who had ended up penciling for Woody was going around using the pages that he penciled for Woody as samples, which is completely inappropriate because the, his, his pencils were invisible underneath Woody's inks. Right. Woody's inks would, would make, he, he would make anybody look like Wood. His, 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 his brushwork, his line was so indelibly his that mm-hmm. It never. It didn't resemble anything that had been done that done under the pencil. Else but before, yeah. it became it became Woody. And yeah, I can't think of anybody. I can't think of anybody around today who fits that bill. Who fits that bill, right? Yeah, I don't think there's anybody doing that. But then I don't. I don't. I don't pay much attention to the breakdown of penciling and inking these days. For me, it's. I never. I never learned how to ink, so I learned how to do drawings that could be reproduced in black and white. That's as far as I got. Yeah, inking doesn't seem to have the same significance as it as it did when. We were reading comics, at least, in, in that it's almost as if the colorist has supplanted him as the as the the other additional partner. Uh, I think that's okay. probably true. Uh, that 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 that's the result of the of the, of the, digi- the digital digitizing of the universe. Right. Uh, so, I, just super quick, I just wanted to obsess about horses for a minute. Did you draw? <laughs> Always a good idea to obsess about horses. How can I? <laughs> did you? So, were, did you draw horses um, for Shattuck at all, or did you avoid yeah. avoid oh, that? Terrible. They were terrible. I drew terrible horses. Just awful. <laughs> and you're not alone in comics. It's it, it's one of the hardest things, and I speak as sort of an authority on that. It's there's yeah, so a lot a horse of bad horses right. drawn. You're obsessed with horses, aren't you? Yeah. Yes, thousand um, horses. I mean, I mean, Gil. I mean, the, the thing that Gil always said, and this is not a joke, is he said that. One of the great separating, separating elements of his generation and mine is that my generation never learned how to draw animals. Oh, his interesting. Did. Yeah. I mean, he did Rex the Wonder Dog. You know, he did, uh, he did, he did a bunch of horse comics. He did Hopalong Cassidy. All those guys learned how to draw animals. Okay. I, I mean, think Kane was one of the best. He would, he, what's that? I think Kane was one of the best at, at the animals. His horses well, he, were he would also, I mean, it was one of the things he would mock Carmine about all the time. Hmm. He felt that Carmine's animal drawing was just dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> well, they hated each other's guts. I mean, I, oh, got, I got a lot of blowback from that relationship at DC Comics when, when Carmine was Oh, in really? Interesting. Because yeah. I was associated with Gil, and rightfully so. So I, I just wanted to make one observation, then give it back over to Alex to talk about Neil Adams. You've previously stated that you didn't, and superheroes were never 
never your thing, really. That you like to do things about guys with guns or guys holding swords in their hands. Well, the, the reality is th- this is self-serving in the sense that by the t- when, I, when I started getting work, like I said, I wasn't very good. And I wasn't good enough to do that sort of stuff. I didn't have the skill set required for it. The only guy in my generation who came in when I did, a little bit, a little bit before I did, was ready for that was Buckler. Okay. Mm. Oh, okay. I mean, Rich, Rich, Buckler, Rich Buckler arrived fully formed. He really did. Um, he had his, his skill, he had a, a perfectly matched skill set to do superhero comic books. Right. And, um, and there are so many complex reasons as to why he did not become a demigod that, you know, that it's, it's an entirely other conversation. Um, right. Starling comes in a couple of years later, but Buckler was there from the start and, and, you know, he was the only one. I mean, you look at that, you know, you look at, at you know, Kaluta, Wrightson, Brunner, Weiss. Simonson, me, none of us were really superhero people. Right. And, and, yeah, I, was the least, and I, I was certainly the least skilled of that. So I, I had to literally find other stuff to do that, could, that, I, could, that I could match what, what little skill set I had, too. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like your mentors, those first two, um, were perfect for you then, because Kane was, was you know, interested in doing things like Savage and Black Mark, and Wally Wood, in 1970, was doing sword and sorcery stuff, right. Barbarians, predating Conan. Right. Um, so it, it's like you went to the right people to well, not I mean, do superheroes. I, I mean, I, I, for me these days, the stuff of wood that I look at almost daily is the shock suspense stuff. Um, the stuff that he, did, that he did, you know, for the, li- the liberal hysteria comics at EC. That stuff, I mean, his, his depiction of the crumbling American city, circa 1952-53, is the archetype of, of my, 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 the visualizing in my head of what my childhood looked like. When I read, when I read Jim Thompson's novels, it's Wallace Wood's imagery that comes to mind. Wow. Well, okay. Thank you. Well, not Thompson, I think. I knew, yeah, trust me on this, pal. <laughs> <laughs> if you were that guy, you'd be drunk and dead. Yes, I would be. Now, uh, around 1972, you left Wally and you met Neil Adams. Tell us, what, what had you leave uh, the, the Wood studio, and then how did you meet Neil Adams? Well, I mean, I, had, I, had no, I didn't have the skill set that, that could sustain. I didn't, I didn't have to do a long, long, long work. I got bored really easily. I got frustrated because my talent wasn't there. Hmm. Neil saw something in me which I've never been able to understand that he changed my life. He really did. He, he, he pushed me around. He yelled at me. He, he, he manipulated me. But he forced me to get work, and he got me work, and for which I will have forever be grateful. Yes. You know, he's a very difficult and controversial figure. I'm using the word controversial in this context, but I know him personally, so I'm saying it. Uh-huh. Uh, he's a difficult guy, but, but he, I owe him that aspect of my career. I truly do. How did you, you guys meet? I met him at, I think, at, at DC Comics. When, you know, he, was, he was working in the bullpen at DC opposite Murphy Anderson. In those days, a lot of guys worked in the office. It's a conceit that I've fictionalized in the, in the Hey Kids stuff, but most, most didn't, but some did. Mm-hmm. That's where I met Neil, and, um, and we started hanging out. I met I, and I met him again at one of the first Fridays. Um, originally, the first Fridays were at Roy Thomas's, and they moved to Jeff Jones's place. That's where I met Bernie. That's where I met met Michael and, and Alan and Frank and just all these guys. Yeah, uh, Roy Crankle, for Christ's sake. And Neil was there, and um, yeah, we started hanging out. I mean, you know, we we hung out as a group. You know, in those days, uh, the, the the coffee room at the DC at DC Comics was the apex of DC on one, on one arm and independent news on the other. We hung around there. That's how you got work. You know, That's if someone cool. needed something fast over the weekend, you got a job. Yeah. So you know, then Neil you, introduced you. spend the day drinking coffee in there. And, and Neil introduced you to uh, Boltnoff and Julia Schwartz at DC yeah. Comics. Is that well, correct? Julie, wouldn't, Ju- Julie wouldn't use me because, you know, Ju- see, for Julie, the archetypal artist for Julie Schwartz was Murphy Anderson. Mm-hmm. Um, Julie re- represented a sensibility in the science fiction world of as literal-minded a take on SF as you could possibly imagine. There's a, if you look at science fiction illustration, there's a, there's a gap that exists that's leaped between the work of guys like, like, like Jack Gaughan and Ed M. Schwiller. And all of a sudden you see guys like, you know, Boris Vallejo show up. And, you know, like even Bob Abbott's take on, on the John Carter of Mars covers uh, and the Tarzan covers. And then, then Michael Whalen comes along, and Whalen, Whalen's take on the Burroughs material, particularly the John Carter stuff, is phenomenally literal-minded. Okay, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and Julie Schwartz really represented that literal-minded nature. Okay, mm-hmm. when Murphy died, his archetypal artist was Dave Cockrum. Yeah. Um, in that in that sense of just you know not there's no there's nothing challenging or threatening about that work. Yeah, it's kind of a okay? smooth smooth kind of line there. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, Julie could never embrace Joe Kubert's kind of approach. Yeah. Whereas he loved, he loved Mike Grell stuff because Grell reminded him. From Julie's perspective, Grell was simply another version of Neil Adams. Oh, okay, yes. Okay. Uh, in the way that, that for, for, for Roy, when Roy couldn't convince Bernie to come over to Marvel, he got Brunner. And from Roy's perspective, Brunner was a perfectly good substitute for Wrightson. Hmm, interesting. Okay. So you worked on some romance gothic stuff and preferred... Terrible. Like oh, God. <laughs> it's execrable. I, uh, I mean, if I had any shame left, I'd kill myself. You know, the world <laughs> <is> <laughs> no, and, I mean, uh, I, had, I had no... Look, I really had no... I mean, I, people laugh at me. They think I'm being, being, being falsely modest or overtly self-deprecatory. But the truth of the matter is the work is dreadful. Really? And then I got good. But it took a long time to get good yeah. because they didn't have anything natural going on for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, look, right now I'm sitting in my in my in my guest bedroom. All right, I'm on the yeah. bed. Uh, to my right, there's a Bernie Fuchs painting from 1962. Directly in my eye line is the original poster for The Outsiders by David Grove. To my left is a is an Edwin Georgie painting, and to the right of that is a is a Nancy Stahl portrait of Johnny Hodges. I am surrounded yeah. by the work of giants, and this yeah. the work is here to intimidate and remind me of of, of being humble in my own in, in my own insignificance. Nice, and quite serious. Interesting. So, so those first, those major DC stuff you did, like Sword and Sorcery, one through five, Weird World. Mm-hmm. You're not. You don't like looking at those. I, I, I'm, I'm literally trying to learn something, and I'm, and I'm getting there. But it's, but it's, it's like, I'm like a bottom feeding, knuckle dragging loser, getting, getting someplace. There's nothing happening that that that's, that has any real value. Yeah. And I don't want to take away from people who, who love the work. They're, you're entitled to love whatever you fucking love. I really mean that. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, from my perspective, I didn't get good until I was driven out of comics and, did Amer- and, and was away for a couple of years, developing respect for craft, and came back and did American Flag. The work right. I did in the 70s, and I include in that the work I did for Byron Price, is, is, is numbing. In, 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 its, in its lack of understanding of the value of what I could bring to the table. Oh, interesting. When I did, by the time I got to do Flag, I had actually discovered who I was and come to terms with who I was and, be, and was able to put it on paper both in text and visual. So the, That's really Kil- what it's about. So Kill Raven with Neil Adams, an amazing Biggest, adventure. The, the first came. major mistake of my career. Why is that? Because Neil took eight months to do 12 pages or 12 months to do eight pages and I did mm-hmm. the rest in a weekend. And no good deed is ever and no good deed ever goes unpunished. <laughs> <laughs> so so was it Neil that introduced you to Marvel also? No. Okay, how'd that work? I don't, Roy called me for some reason. I have no idea why. Okay, because you because you guys were hanging out on the first Friday thing. I met Roy at a couple of places. You know. Um, yeah. You know, Roy was. You know, Roy and I were. You know, I, I, I mean, these guys were all ten years my senior. You know, I was mm-hmm. born in fifty. Roy was born, I think, in forty. You know, there's that mini generation of guys born between 38 and 40. You got Steranko, Neil, Archie, Roy, Skates. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're all those those guys born born back then. And then there and they're a tiny generation. And then my guys come along. You know, you know, the oldest one is like born in 46. Yeah, he writes. I think I think Simon was born in 46. Right. right. And and Rice is born in 48. I'm born in 50. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm the youngest guy in that group. Okay, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I had the biggest mouth, <laughs> nothing to back it up with. Yeah. <laughs> so you were doing work for the Marvel Black and White magazines, right? Yeah, I, I, I did some stuff there. Yeah, I worked for everybody back then. I worked for yeah. I worked for Marvel. I worked for Warren. Uh-huh. You know, you worked because basically, by that time, the the, the shibboleth of working for one co- for two companies at the same time was gone. Mm-hmm. All those guys, all those Silver Age guys who went to who sneaked over to work at Marvel. You know, un- under pseudonyms like, uh, you know, like Gil did, and like Jack Abel did, and a bunch mm-hmm. of these cats. Mm-hmm. That that was gone by that point. You know, I see, yeah. you, you could work for both companies. You, you, you know, okay. you work you work where you could get work. Uh-huh. So tell and that includes you, Atlas. Uh, let's yeah. talk about that a little bit. Exactly. Alex. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, Atlas, exactly. Atlas was Atlas was this was a was fabulous. It was the it was it was it was Martin Goodman wanting to get his get his son a job, uh-huh. and and to piss in the face. I mean. So recently, somebody posted something on Facebook. Well, let, let's stop talking about the next Marvel, you know, whatever that may be. Uh-huh. And every comic book company wants to be the next Marvel comics, but that's like lightning in a bottle. It doesn't happen. Right. Um, he, he started this company, and he had a lot of money, and he spent a lot of money. And what Atlas really achieved, I can't speak for anybody else, but it certainly achieved for me, is it doubled my rate at both Marvel and DC. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, to um, compete, yeah. You know, they, and they were, you know, they, they were right around the corner. 
you know, Marvel was on on, on Madison just 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 between 58th and 59th. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sorry, between between uh, 57th and 58th, and um, and and Atlas was on, was over on, was on on 57th Street. Did, did um, you meet um, Jeff Rovin and Larry Lieber and Martin Goodman? Did you meet those guys? I never met Goodman. I've, uh-huh. I've never met Larry. I certainly worked with Jeff. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Jeff and I have had a checkered relationship for many, many years. Oh, okay. did you get your art back? I did. I did. Oh, as part of like that was part of the oh, agreement. Yeah. Oh yeah. By, by that time, we were getting artwork back. Yeah. Oh, that's. Some people say they that that was a fiction and it didn't happen, but. Oh no, we, we were getting art back by that point. Yes. Yeah, Always that's good to know. That's actually good to yeah. know. Oh yeah. Jeff, well, how was uh, what was your impression of Jeff Rovin? When I won't, I won't now. say he's still he's still litigious. I'm not going to say anything. Now. Oh, interesting, <laughs> interesting. Okay. Well, let's not either, Alex. Yeah, then let's not either. My God. Um, <laughs> okay, so um, now, Jim, go ahead with Scorpion and all that. One of the things that you did um, at Atlas with Scorpion, which had longer legs than one would expect, because you left it and they they did something crazy with it, but but you took it back sort of as Dominic Fortune, correct? Yeah, I, I basically walked around the corner and I said, "Fuck those guys! How would you like to do the Scorpion over here with a different name?" And they said, "Sure." <laughs> That's how you you can't understand how loose things were in those days. Yeah, that was the, that was that was the entire pitch. We're, we're, we're and at, and, and even even though I even though I'd written the Scorpion stuff, they weren't gonna let me write it at Marvel. You know, uh-huh. I mean, so well, much of the uh, so much underpinning why I became a writer of my own stuff was that I realized that most of the people who were being accredited to write the material that I was drawing yeah. had failed as artists. But and now, tell us them. about the the um, when it after you did it in the color comic, it went on and became part of the uh, magazine line, and you were you were painting it right. I was doing it in full color in marker. It was kind of a mess. Uh, again, I was I was applying limited versions of technique that I used in other places, you know. Um, and and again, it was a job of work. I didn't want to do their stuff. I wanted to do my stuff, and I was willing to strike the devil's bargain of of selling myself out from under, but getting to do stuff I felt like doing. That was the bargain, you know. I hate I hate reading that character written by other people, including by writers whom I rather like. Because they, they 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 don't have anything near the voice that, the, that I, I brought to the character. There was some bad use of that character uh, oh at various oh various God. points. Oh but, God! Oh But God. that's true with all you know. If they last long enough, they become ruined at at some oh, point. Of course, that that that's the nature of the beast. Look, I, I still I mean, as much as I have utter and complete disdain for mass market superhero comic books, I remain utterly awestruck at anyone who can find anything interesting or new to say about characters that have been around between 50 and 80 years. I'm stunned right. by this. You know, my entire relationship with this material is an, an utterly based on nostalgia. You know, my favorite Superman product in the past 25 years is Tom DeHaven's novel. It's Superman. Hmm. You know, I have no interest whatsoever in any of these things. I just, and, but I, but again, I'm, I'm, I'm awestruck. Uh, as much as I dislike him intensely, but Grant Morrison's all-star Superman was, was just lovely. No, no. Oh yeah, it's one of my favorite Superman. It, it, it's beautiful, works. it really is. I mean, and it, it's 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 aided along by the fact that he that he and, he and uh, he and Vince did an astonishing job just together. There's a there's a great synergy between the two of them. But the work really is moving. It really is. It's astonishing. And and again, this doesn't in any way interdict interdict with the fact that I loathe him. So I'm going to be. By the, way, he lo- he, by the way, he loathes me. So there's a spoiler alert there. You know, he despises me as well. I'm going to be a coward and let Alex ask you about Star Wars because I don't want to do sure, it. Sure, no, go ahead. I, don't, don't, don't be a candy ass. Did, is it true that George Lucas personally requested you? Yes, yes, it is. Uh, he, he'd seen the, Star, the, the Starbucks stuff I did for Star Reach. Right, um, okay. You know, Lucas, Lucas was a half owner of a comic book store in New York City called Super Snipe. That's what he was doing for money between the time of American, American Graffiti and, and Star Wars. I see. He'd partnered up with a guy named Ed Summer who had been the one of the other graduates of uh, that, that class at, uh, at, at USC Film School, Lucas had seen this work. I mean, certainly Han Solo was deeply inspired by Cody Starbuck. Anybody who knows comics knows that. But to say it publicly is to sound like a bitter old man, so I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Oops, I just said it in public. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, he, he did. I think he regretted it because I, um, I, I, think, I think people look at Star Wars in, in retrospect in the same way they look at Jesus. You know, when Jesus was around, if he was around, for his 33 years lifespan, there wasn't much said. It was all basically what happened after the fact that mattered. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And Star Wars, I mean, ha- I mean, look, I saw the movie two days before it opened nationwide, and I was stunned because it, had I known it was going to be this big a deal, I'd like to think I could have done a better job. I'm not sure I could have. Oh, uh, the, material, the material didn't translate as well at the comics as you think. And, I mean, I did the breakdown of the script because one of the reasons that writers liked working with me in those days 
is that I could take that script and break it down into six issues. Okay. Right. And with, and they, they would, they would know full well, they, they, they could work with it. I mean, you know, Roy, when I look at those pages, Roy is just writing and writing and writing and writing and writing. There's no faith in the, in the, in the reader to, to, to read narrative content individual. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that seems to be the case today that, 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 that sensibility has won, but the star Wars stuff on the page and in the, and in the stills read like any number of, you know, cheap Jack super, you know, science fiction movies you'd ever seen. There was nothing special in it. You, I mean, anybody with any grounding in SF could see every single place that Lucas borrowed from, right. You know, um, consistently and that's okay. You know, I mean, again, it was a job of work. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm 24 years old. I'm living in New York city. I got a, you know, an apartment to support, you know, uh, I'm married and, um, I'm working and you work. Mm-hmm. Nice. So around 1978, you know, this is around the time when Wrights and Kaluta Jones and Smith had their studio. Mm-hmm. You had your own studio upstart associates with Starlin Simonson and Val Myerick. Tell me about that time period a little bit. Well, we, we all, we all, I mean, we were all living and working in the city. We needed a place to work. We found a joint. You know, I, you know, I've never been to, to Wrights and Jones's, Kaluta's, and, and, and Smith's studio. I never have been. Those guys always had a, a kind of a legendary quality about them mm-hmm. that, you know, I had no, no, no part of. I didn't really have that kind of mindset at all. I was, a, you know, I'm a man among men and a worker among workers, and I've, I felt that way about my life all this time. <laughs> but we, we got a space. You know, it was a, a large square room. We each took a corner, and the center was our, was our the common area. And it was a great working space. I was there every day. I lived closest. I was the only one who walked there. I lived on, it was on 29th Street between 7th and 8th. And I lived on 25th Street and 2nd Avenue. And if you know New York City, the only way to get there was on foot or cab. Yeah. Because there was no, public transportation would go around to get there. So I walked there every day. And, um, and I was on a, on a kind of a mindset schedule that got me there at 7 in the morning. Uh-huh. I'd show up with two bagels and, and four packs of cigarettes. And by the end of the day, the bagels, were, <laughs> bagels were gone and so were the cigarettes. I was a pretty um, heavy smoker at the time. What, was there a sense that you, Starlin Simonson and Val Myerick, that you guys were going to be the next generation no. of storytellers? No. Was there a sense no. of that? No, not at all. Um, we, we were there to work. Right. Um, it, we, there were a lot of laughs. There's, there's great anecdota of Simonson and a, and a, and a file cabinet, but that's another story. We, we had a great working space. It was, it was really good to be there. I loved it. I loved being there. We had great parties there. We had a huge balcony out front that, 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 that made for nice springtime parties. Oh, nice. It was good. So before Jim starts off on the 80s, in 1979, you worked on World of Krypton, what about Superman's origin? I love that uh, story, but I, I do love that. Yeah, it's story. because you, it's because you were a child and you loved it because it told you. Yeah, okay. I have no, I have, well, I I have mean, no, no memory I, of. I, I read it for the first time two years ago because I was one when it first came out. <laughs> one, one, <laughs> one. So, but, what uh, one means to me is the song at the end of the chorus line. You know what right. I mean? Yeah, the only thing I was staring at then was my one penis, and that's it. But. Um, <laughs> But uh, and so it was a very busy time, and you also worked on uh, Alfred Bester's Stars My Destination. Yeah, the, the reason I did the World of Krypton was to support myself while I was doing the work for Byron. Oh, okay. Byron, yeah, Byron paid nothing. Up. Byron yeah. paid absolutely nothing. Okay. And uh, and I had to support myself by doing hack work at other companies. <laughs> um, sort of Heaven, Flowers from Hell with Michael Moorcock. That was not with Byron. That was that was for Heavy Metal. That was for Heavy Metal, and that and mm-hmm. you did some design for Heavy Metal the movie as well. Well, they were having. It was my first real introduction to understanding of how the difference between California and New York mindset. Um, they'd, they'd spent six weeks and a lot of money trying to get designs for the, the, the last episode of the heavy metal movie, which, by the way, was a piece of shit. Um, <laughs> and they couldn't get anything out of these guys. And they, they hired me to come out. I was there for 10 days. They paid me a per diem. They put me up at a hotel. And I was able to deliver the work that they needed from me and finished that work by noon every day. They, kept, they showed up every day at four, and, I, and, and by that time I'd already I was freelancing at the same time for A and M Records. Yeah, I had a friend of mine who worked in the art department at A and M, and I picked up some work from them. That was I was working on there during the week. So I made a great deal of money that week, re- relatively speaking. Right. Um, that was the Jesse James album cover. Yes, right? and also some stuff for the police. Yeah. Oh, um, cool. At any rate, um, it, it it finally came clear to me that. This is my version of that of that tank that the telegram that Herman Mankiewicz sent to Ben Hecht in 1927, which was, 
that, and I, this is a quote verbatim, there is a fortune to be made out here and the competition is idiots. Don't let this get around. And, <laughs> and it's, it's really terribly true because the, the California bred talent were utterly unmotivated to make any real action. If you move to California with a sensibility that, that, that comes from a work ethic from Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, New Jersey, you're going to kick serious ass out here. Right. And that's, that's been my experience. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so basically, just working hard. I mean, besides doing the, the work that I, I was hired to do for them, I also ended up resign, designing a female character from, from, from Joaquin Menes' piece, the Harry Canyon piece. Mm-hmm. Because he couldn't see exactly what they were looking for, he kept coming back with a femme fatale, and I was and I basically did you know a white girl version of Santa of singing someone singing Santa Baby. <laughs> so yeah, that was uh, that was a my first introduction to animation and one of the very few experiences I've had working in it. Interesting. You mentioned Byron Price. I you did. Know, uh, dur- during uh, the Stranko interview, he had mentioned that Byron was on the search for the graphic novel, for the true sequential graphic novel. Tell us about your role meeting Byron Price. Do you feel like he succeeded in achieving the final graphic novel? Tell us about that. I don't. I, I believe that Byron operated from a perspective of, of, of he, lo- loving the idea of comics but having contempt for the language. Hmm. And his work consisted of trying to find a way to reconstruct, deconstruct, and reinvent Something that had already been done just fine. <laughs> that's that's an amazing legacy. Okay. Well, he, he also had his head. He had his head so firmly shoved up Serenko's ass that you know he, he could see could see through his nostrils. <laughs> Was Serenko an influence on you? Not really. Uh-huh. You know, I like Jim personally quite a bit. I mean, yeah. and, and in the way. And the last time I, I hadn't seen Jim in many years, and the last time I saw Jim was in a convention in, in, in Ohio, and we ended up shooting this shit for a couple of hours, and he turned me on to something I had no idea existed, for which we ever grateful, mm-hmm. which is totally outside of comics. It was the, uh, the piano trios of Andre Previn. Which, I mean, Jim has really good ears. He really yeah. does. Yeah. Um, politically speaking, Jim and I exist on different planets. <laughs> you know, um, his his politics and mine differ radically, if you will. Yeah, yeah. But no, not really. But again, I, but I like the guy. Yeah, no, that's awesome. All right, Jim, go ahead. All right, so briefly back to Marvel, just for for a minute, and your kind of departure there. Talk about for your for your eyes only the adaptation for a minute. That's yeah, where you I, had a falling I, out I, with Shooter, I, right? I, yeah, I did. Shooter and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I. For a, for a while there, Shooter was talking, talking me how what a wonderful guy he was. Shooter hated me, and I'm not all that fond of him either. You know, I, I represented the the other side of comics to a guy like Shooter, or even John Byrne. You know, these are guys who, who did, you know, I mean, Shooter, was, Shooter started working in comics when he was, what, three, six, something like that? Mm-hmm. Thirteen, um, I think. But Yeah, whatever. And, you know, like, like, like the guys of, that, of the previous generation. And, um, and to a profound extent, he never really moved past that sensibility. You know, and I I took on that assignment specifically so I could get the opportunity to do the cover. Right. And you know, getting inked by Vinnie Coletta was not high on my list of desires out of my future. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I wasn't good enough to to to, to survive underneath Vinnie's onslaught. Okay. <laughs> and he and I had words about a decision he'd made uh, in the office on Good Friday. It put an end to my presence at Marvel for a while. It drove me out of the business for a while. I'd been doing paperbacks for a couple of years, mm-hmm. and happily so. And then what first made me the offer on a flag, I jumped on it because there was an opportunity to come back to comics, with what was, with, which I didn't realize at the time, which would turn out to be a clean slate. Mm-hmm. So, so we might owe flag to uh, Shooter and, and For Your Eyes Only, because if, if, if it hadn't been for that, you might have stayed at Marvel for a while. Oh, quite likely, yes. Ah, well, I'm looking yeah, at I mean, that work yeah, differently yeah, yes, now. Without, without, without question. I mean, um, you know, I was doing okay financially. You know, it was fine. Alex and I both want to talk about Flag because that's obviously a, a, a big departure. I mean, that is, as you said, the, 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 a, turning, a, a turning point in your career. Mm-hmm. Um, Alex? Yeah, so First Comics, tell us about that company. What's there to tell? I mean, well, you can't, uh, so they're, they're independent comics. How did you end up there? I've been... You know, I was, like I said, by that time, I was in my early 30s. I was in crushing credit card debt, having worked for Byron Price for as long as I had, you know, because no one made any money working for Byron Price except for Byron Price. Hmm. I knew Mike Gold from D.C. We had, we had, we shared enthusiasms both in and outside of comics. Mm -hmm. And he asked me if I had any interest in working for a new company and they had real money. 
not to sound puerile or or just you know or or to blow the fantasies of American comic book readers, but this is a job, yeah. and I was in serious debt, and I had an opportunity to get out of that debt, and the money that flat, the money they offered to me was going to make that possible. Right. I created this book. I sold. It was a kitchen sink comic book. It was based on a lot of material I've been thinking about and reading about in that in that era. You know, I was I was a a serious stoner, a serious drunk. I was operating from respect perspective of extremely blind rage at what I regarded with dep- the depredations of the Republican Party. Who knew? I mean, really, who knew what was going to be coming down the pike, right? I mean, this, I was pissed at Reagan. Imagine now. At any rate, they bought it whole hog. That's how it played. And significantly, you know, the the the, the, the book had enormous impact, but not on the audience, but on on the, on the talent pool. Right. Okay. Um, because the people who saw the book were people who became professionals. The audience, this is, this is not a book, even at that point, the, the audience had been convinced that the material was the brand. And I was, op- I was operating on the perspective that, you know, we, we were entering a, a realm of star system and the talent would be the brand. And to a great extent, it's sort of mid- middle of the road for me. And I'm, ne- I'm never going to achieve that kind of attention from the audience because I don't do material that flatters the audience. Okay. And Flag was a, a not an easy book to read for people who had been accustomed to the X Men, and an audience that had been raised on the on the lap it to you of the Silver Age and then the Marvel Age. This was material that was too complicated for that audience. They just right. weren't interested in it. And also, comic book readers have a tendency to be very embarrassed by anything that goes beyond pinup and cheesecake. When when they introduce the concept of actual human desire. They get very, very, very itchy. They're not comfortable with this. Um, Do you think that you hit at the same time as uh, Frank Miller was really becoming something um, noticeable and that Alan Moore was doing what he was doing on Swamp Thing and Dave Sim was really expanding uh, his ambitions in terms of Cerebus that all of you were were doing? Because you were part of that just as much as they were. Uh, uh, yeah, but, but, but I, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not familiar with Dave's stuff. I mean, I'm barely familiar. I mean, I knew Dave years ago, but I have no familiarity with the Cerebus stuff at all, I have to say. But I knew Frank's stuff. And, and Frank, Frank's first great gift, from my perspective, was synergizing Eisner, Ditko, and Kane, and, uh, and beautifully so, okay? Oh, that's and, great, because you're and, totally right. I hadn't seen that, but, but yeah, the, that, that, Kane that's really is very what present he was doing. And, and Alan's stuff, uh, I read the Swamp Thing, after the, Swamp Thing stuff after the fact, the first stuff of Alan's that I really, I, I read the Bo Jeffrey saga, which just killed me. And, and I was reading the, reading the Watchmen stuff uh, in black and white as it came in. But, but, it, but earlier on in that, in, that, in that era, the flag stuff, I just, after the fact, Jeanette Kahn literally grilled me for not bringing it to DC first. And I said to her, and I stand by this, that they would never have published the book as I'd done it, ever. Because no, the, the, no only, the only reason the only reason Flag existed the way it did was because it was working. There was for a company without, to use your own word, baggage. There right. was no history there, there and it was made for the direct market, right? Not yes, for yes. It, it, there's no way that book could have done it. I mean, look, I, and I, and again, I reached a tenth of the audience that anybody that that, that Alan and Frank reached on their books. A tenth, because Flag was a smaller company. At first, rather, was a smaller company. And you have no idea how many years I've spent explaining to the to the to the the, 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 the visually and narratively and a historically literate crew that frequently interview, explaining that no, I did not get that particular trope or that particular technique from that guy. He got it from me, but you didn't notice that because you were busy reading Superman comics. Right. Uh, that's really the way it's at. This is where you. It, was this where you developed some of your your strongest collaborations too? I mean, in terms of uh, your letterer, your art, your colorist. I mean, there seemed to be you developed a team that went on to do just magnificent work. Well, look, on, I mean, I, I I believe. I mean, we now live in a real in a world which I don't think is ever going to change, where the writer is the alpha in comics, which is irrelevant and pointless. And the problem with that is that it reduces the letterer to a, a, a delivery system for text. When a letterer in comics is a, is a narrative collaborator. And I'm lucky enough to, to have worked with Ken Brusenak from the time that we were in our early 30s. We've known each other since our early 20s. And Brusenak and I, as, are, as I've said more than once, twins under different mothers. We operate from a 
a re- an art director's understanding of graphics and the, using the tropes of comics in ways that, that satisfy us. When I did The Divided States of Hysteria, when I, when I gave Ken the script, I had no idea what to expect from him with my note that said Internet Chatter. There was a phrase that was banding around. <laughs> it, seems, it seems to have banished. But I expected something like along the lines of, you know, caption buttons or some shit. What I got was this absolute tour de force of insanity graphics. That was fucking nuts that I just loved. Hmm. And it's true. the same is true in Flag. I always got more from him than I asked for. And bear in mind, just like me, he's a, phle- a phenomenal pain in the ass. We're both very difficult men, but we're also deeply professional and, and with a great love of our own professions. Well, this has been an awesome part one of the Howard Chicken interview here at the Comic Book Historian Podcast. I'm Alex Grand with my co-host Jim Thompson, and we will return in a couple weeks for the second half. Cheers. Cheers.